Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It's a beautiful Sunday morning. My name is Josh. If I, hadn't have, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, I would absolutely love to after the service. I'll be posing as Brian probably by the back door, so I uh, can meet you there, um, or by the coffee. I'm likely to be one of those two places. Uh, Brian's out of town. He'll be back next week, so I wanted to thank you for giving me the great pleasure of preaching, and uh, I'm looking forward to spending some time in God's Word together this morning. I'm going to read our, our passage, uh, which comes from Matthew 22, and then um, we'll get to work. All right. So if you follow along with me, this is the Gospel reading. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. All right, well, we are continuing our series called The ABCs of In-Town, where we're looking at basically the DNA of our church, just like you learn ABCs when you're putting together the building blocks of language. We're looking at what are the building blocks, what makes us who we are, not only as in-town, but also as a Christian church. We're spending a few weeks looking at each word of our mission statement, and today we're on the word Christian, which we looked at last week as well. Uh, So the mission statement goes like this, uh, in-town is a community seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. So, Christian. In particular, we're looking at this passage where Jesus reminds the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious leaders, what is the greatest and first commandment? As you can see from the mission statement, gospel is coming down the road, right? So we're going to be looking looking at that coming up. So I want to give you just a quick preview, and then we're going to come back to the text. But I think that's important to give us some reference for for what's going on here. Okay, so this is for free, and then we'll be back uh, in a second. Um, If someone asked you, what's the gospel, what would you say? What would your your answer be? You know, what's what's the core of, of what you believe? What's the gospel? What would you say? The word that's, that's translated from the Greek into the English word gospel is euangelion, which is a word for an announcement or news, sometimes from a royal court or even from the field of battle that a, a herald would bring. And it's an announcement of an event that's taken place that changes things from how they were to how they are now. Okay? So then when we see that word used in the New Testament, it's this announcement of good news, something that Jesus has done that totally changes everything. The beauty of what we believe as Christians is the gospel. Right? And so I'll put it to you like this. There's a number of different ways we could, we could think about the good news of who Jesus is, but I'll put it to you like this. The gospel is the good news that everything that God requires, he has provided in Jesus. Everything God requires of you, he has provided in Jesus. Now, that's going to be so important as we work through this because there's a lot, of, a lot of weight to this. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, and love your neighbor. Who can do that? It's an impossibility unless we keep this in mind. That because of what Christ has done, because he perfectly fulfilled the law, he empowers us to actually utilize this as a gift rather than a curse. His whole record has been credited to our account, and our whole record has been credited to 
to his. All because he loves us, because he loves you joyfully. So, so in light of his joy in you, I want to look at three things this morning that come out of this text. As we're looking at our ABCs of, of in town, I put the uh, points into ABCs because I thought that would be very creative. And uh, so we're doing uh, three things here using the ABCs. What should we do in light of this text? We should answer with admiration. We should move beyond bifurcation. And we should have compassion with conviction. Answer with admiration, move beyond bifurcation, and have compassion with conviction. All right, so uh, you can keep your bulletin handy if you want to refer back to the text. Answer with admiration. We just said that loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that's the best way, right? That's the, that's the good life. Now, you might disagree with me on that, but that's kind of where I'm coming from, just so my cards are on the table. That's the, that's the good life. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is, uh, if we're honest, we have a really hard time believing that, that that's actually the good life. We have a hard time loving God and a hard time loving our neighbors because we really, really, really love ourselves. Like General Hospital, all my children, soap opera, in love with ourselves. Um, at least me, I don't know about you. Our, our digital lives are shrines to ourselves. People are exhausting to us. We leave parties early so we can go home and watch TV. We're really into us. We're never really sure how much material stimulation is enough material stimulation. The knee-jerk response to that might be, okay, so just enjoy things less, right? No, the answer is not less pleasure, but it's a better object of your affection. It's a better, a better pursuit, a more worthy object of worship. Something, or rather, someone who has proven their love with unmistakable action even against those who sought to put him to death. So when we hear the great commandment, how can we answer with, with admiration instead of indifference? Alexander McLaren, who, who was a pastor that I really respect um, and a great preacher, he put it this way. He said, With all of thy heart and as thyself sound equally impossible, but both result necessarily from the nature of the case, He says this, innate self-regard will yield to no force but that of love to God. Did you get that? Innate self-regard, there's no force that that will cause my love for myself to break and bend and be redirected other than a supremely worthy object of adoration. It will yield only to loving God. Love for Josh must yield to love for God. I must decrease, he must increase. Does that make sense? God, God, he calls all of me, he calls all of you, not all of you people, but you as an individual, everything that makes up who you are, he calls that to himself. And as the gospel takes root in our lives, God's spirit causes us to begin to bear fruit. Remember last week we looked at a vineyard? God causes that vineyard to begin to grow and bear good fruit so that we will answer more and more with adoration as those muscles start to grow and take place. So, so if innate self-regard, as McLaren says, will only yield to a better lover, what is it about me and what's going on inside of me that makes that shift, that change, so painful? <laughs> and what makes me push back against that so strongly? 
Well, let's look at getting beyond bifurcation. The text here, if you look at it in verse 37, um, seems to indicate that we have a heart, we have a soul, and that we have a mind, right? Parallels of this text, like in Luke, for example, also mention strength um, as, a, as a way to love the Lord your God. I, w- I would put it to you this way. Because God calls me, I, must, I, gotta see, I need to see myself as God sees me. That I'm more than a random collection of cells, right? So your, your body and your spirit, you're made up of, of these invisible uh, characteristics and attributes that you can't quite put your finger on. Equally important to following Jesus, right? The, the fact that God calls all of me to himself means it's, it's actually wrong to try and get away with that tempting urge to live lives bifurcated, between body and spirit, but we have to get beyond that. They're intimately connected. God wants it all. Um, so the, the terms are tricky here. So if you're, if you're looking at that verse, uh, verse 37, your heart, all your soul, all your mind, it's kind, of, it's kind of tricky because isn't there some overlap there? As you're looking at that and you try to think, okay, well, here's, here's my soul, here's my mind, my, my heart is over here. So can you tell me? Because I've been trying to figure out, and I, I honestly can't. Um, can you tell me where your heart stops and your soul begins? Or where your soul ends and your mind takes over? We tend, to think as, as, we tend to think of kind of warmth and affection as residing in the heart and kind of the cold, you know, calculating math and accounting business in the mind. And I suppose in a certain poetic or linguistic sense, of course that's true. But is that true in an ultimate sense? It's not really that simple. And as I was thinking about it, this kind of occurred to me. Why is it that I get so angry when I get hungry? Anyone else have this problem? Do you know the term they have for it? You get hangry, right? You, get, you have hunger anger. Um, why is that? Something about me that's physical is, is affecting something about me that's invisible, right? But yet they're intimately connected. Why is it that when I get really stressed, I get exhausted. Why is it that people go to the doctor's office with burned-out fried adrenal glands from going 100 miles an hour for years on end, and then they have to take a six-month sabbatical? Why is that? Certainly, it can't just be long hours, right? It can't just be punching the clock. It's got to be something more than that. It's got to be the mortgage payment on top of the car payment, on top of family, on top of obligations, on on top of hopes and passions and aspiration and memories, and it's all that <laughs> put together, and then you're in the doctor's office. I guess as I was reflecting on it this week, it occurred to me that I don't really think about my heart and my soul and my mind really that much at all. Um, do you ever think about why you have these, these faculties or these senses? They're almost like super senses, Right? That there's something more to you besides taste, touch, sight, smell. What's the fifth one? There we go. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. There's more to you than that. Where do all those terminate? Right? When you touch something and there's a sensation, maybe a neuroscientist in the room could explain this better to me, but there's something that it connects with inside of you that is so powerful that it, it moves beyond just five senses, what you can experience. The truth is that you're, you're more than that. Your most powerful memories, your most potent 
pain, your most powerful passions, they, they're more than just what you can see or experience. They're vessels, and, and they don't act independent of your will, right? So my point is, it's all you. We can't say, well, this was happening over here, but, but my, my heart was really over here. No, it's all kind of spaghetti and, and, and intermingled. It's what drives you, it's what scares you, what gets you out of the bed in the morning. What's my point in saying all of this, moving beyond bifurcation, is that we, as Christians, must see that, that here, Jesus is giving us a way of thinking about who we are as people, and to separate ourselves out is actually to violate our very created order and nature. But it's also how we enjoy all of God's good gifts. So I'll just let you into a little uh, bit of my mania. Um, I'm the sort of person that just... I don't know why this is. I tend to focus more on what God forbids than, than everything he's given us in the world to enjoy. Um, and this can, can lead to me beating myself up about a whole host of things. And I, and I was reflecting on that this week, and I was trying to think of a time. I was like, okay, Josh, think of a time when, when there was something good that you got into and God gave it to you, and it was just all of your senses. And, of course, the first thing I thought of was um, Mexican food. And so... Um, I'll, I'll tell you a story to try and maybe drive this point home that thinking of ourselves in these, in these disparate categories of body, soul, spirit is actually not the most helpful thing in the world. Um, so if, if you've ever been to San Diego, you know that it's not very far from the, from the Mexican border. Uh, Cynthia and I lived in San Diego for about 10 years, and so one time we decided we wanted to take a, a trip down there. And uh, we didn't have a ton of money, so we got a group on, which was half off at this all-inclusive hotel that we had never heard of in a part of Mexico we had never heard of. So we figured, this is a great idea. Let's get it. And so we got it, and so we hit the road. But before we left, I was telling a coworker, and he said, oh, I live in Mexico. I have a house on the way to where you're going. Can you take me? And he was a little bit older, lived by himself. He rode a motorcycle from his house to the Marriott where we worked together. And so I said, sure, this is already going to be a weird trip, obviously, so come on, jump in the back. And so, uh, so he got in the back of the car, and we headed for uh, Mexico. And when you cross the border, you go into TJ, which is a huge, I mean, it's a huge city. And then it, it's really dirty, tons of poverty. But you drive through, and then the freeway takes you out towards the coast. And you crest over this hill, and it's just beautiful. I mean, the Pacific Ocean is just expansive and shimmering. This was January, and it was like 75, not a cloud in the sky. It was amazing. And so we're heading down there, and I'm convinced this guy does not own a house. He said it was a beachfront mansion. I, there's no way. Knowing this guy, there's no way. He says, before we get to the house, let me take you to lunch. And so he says, there's a little fishing village. It's called Puerto Nuevo, and we'll stop. We'll get some lobster. It'll be great. So that did exist. We pull in, and all the house is just beautiful. Just this little spit of land, little fishing village, bright blue, red, yellow, just amazing. Seriously, just the little thing is right on the water, and so there's all these people whistling at you and snapping, trying to get you to come to their restaurant. So we pulled in, we got out, they took us up these stairs to the fourth floor on the roof, and we're sitting there on the rooftop. The ocean's just spread before us, and I mean, we just feasted, right? Soul, mind, and, and spirit, I'll tell you that, and my heart, too, for that matter, and a lot of other parts of me. Um, it was so good. I mean, it was lobster, rock lobster, tacos, rice and beans, margaritas, beer, all that good stuff. Lots of Corona. Um, it was amazing. And so we got back, head down the road, and uh, 
I just couldn't stop thinking about that experience, you know, and, and that's what occurred to me. I don't know why that did, but I was thinking, man, that was something that when I ate those tacos, <laughs> every part of my being was there. And it was powerful. Um, the hotel did exist, and his house did exist, actually, much to my surprise. I didn't believe till we pulled up, and he opened the door, and it was huge. I mean, it was like 50 feet from the water. It was, it was absolutely gorgeous. But we couldn't go inside because he was renting it to this group of Russians who were running an online poker ring for a month. And so this is a true story. And so we used the bathroom in the guest house, and then we headed for our hotel. Um, true story. I'm not even lying. Um, my point is this. The dichotomy we draw between body and mind, a divided being, leads to all sorts of confusion. The gospel not only announces our freedom from sin, from feeding trough to rooftop feast, from enemies of God to heirs of God, but also our renewal and renovation after the image of God, that he created you to experience life, experience his creation with all these component parts. And then when you start to split them, you deny your purpose. This means that embracing biblical views on personhood, our chief end, and the law of love are vitally important. Um, This sort of bifurcation today is why sex is everything and nothing. That's why it can be casually entered into as if it's meaningless, but it's also the the hypercharged source of of identity um, and personal definition. That's how Nietzsche can get away, the philosopher can get away with this gem of a quote. He says, that my life has no aim is evident from the accidental nature of its origin. That's just so heartwarming. (laughs) That my life has no aim is evident from the accidental nature of its origin. It's bifurcation. It's how we can come up with every excuse in the world to avoid our neighbors. Um, The challenge is, like that quote in the beginning of the bulletin about Lent being just about loving yourself more, the the challenge for us is, is to not buy into this pageantry of narcissism but to see your heart, mind, and soul as valuable because you belong to God and you're made in his image. You're in Christ. Your identity doesn't depend on you. It doesn't come from you. It comes from him. Galatians 2.20 puts it this way. You've been crucified with Christ. You're loved and cherished by him. He made you the way you are for a reason. You're not a random collection of cells. You have purpose. Even your weaknesses, God seeks to use those to make his name famous. And those aren't accidents either. In some mysterious way, even your weaknesses and failures are part of his providential plan to glorify himself and and renovate you and make you beautiful. Christ has made you his own and he doesn't make mistakes. Paul says this way in Philippians. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. It says, not that I have already obtained or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. So before we move on to compassion with conviction, just hear me on this. Christians have always recognized that we're body and soul, right? That we're two. There's a union there. There's a physical and spiritual part to to each of us. Um, The important thing here, I think, is to realize that the great commandment calls us to offer all of it up to God. And, as we will see here, our neighbor. Right? So you'll see that's next in our text. There's the first and greatest commandment, and then there's a second that's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get into verse 40 so much. Um, 
just to say briefly that all the law and the prophets hang on these two. They're, they depend on them. Everything comes flowing out of these two commandments. Um, and we'll leave it at that. Um, but let's look at compassion with conviction. That uh, What it looks like to go to our neighbor with the convictions of, of who we are and what we believe, but also the compassion of a heart that's been moved by God. Um, that vertical experience of God that we've been talking about, him providing everything that he demands, right? There's that vertical experience, but it's meant to extend horizontally. So kind of like a solar panel. The, the rays of, of God, as, as they beam down towards us, they're meant to be converted into usable energy that extends outward to our neighbors. And why do our neighbors matter? I mean, why shouldn't I just embrace a lifestyle like the Pharisees as scrupulously religious diligently obedient, and hopelessly alone. Why not? Um, well, I referenced Luke, Luke 10 earlier. Jesus, he gives this commandment there, but right after that, he tells the parable of the good Samaritan. So that just like there's, a, well, the verse before what we see in our bulletin, there's a lawyer that asks him this question. Just like that, same thing in Luke 10. There's a lawyer who asks him this question, seeking to tie him up. He says, how do I get eternal life? He says, you know the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor. And it says this. This is, this is so key for us. The lawyer said, seeking to justify himself, he said, so who is my neighbor? So who is it, Jesus? Okay, love the Lord your God, blah, 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 check, love your neighbor. Okay, so just he, tell me who that is exactly so we can get on with this business of inheriting eternal life. This is so key. And this is what really hit me about this this week. The the question is not, so who is my neighbor? But to whom am I a neighbor? That's how it turns. Not who do I see as mine, but who needs me to be theirs? Would I extend the same attention, affection, and interest that I have myself for myself? Um, There's there's scarcely a higher standard of of obsession um, than the one that I have for my own, the only person more concerned for me and more concerned for you than you is Christ, right? That's why Paul says in Romans 5 that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Helmut uh, Theleki, he was a German pastor, he put it this way, the person who is appealed to for help, listen to this quote, the person who is appealed to for help and the person who need help sometimes have quite different ideas about the meaning of the word neighbor. The person who needs help and the person who is appealed to for help sometimes have quite different ideas about the meaning of the word neighbor. I don't know about you, but I specialize in coming up with reasons why people don't need my help. It's a a specialization. I mean, I could could have had a master's degree. It's, it's, It's a specialty of mine. And the turnaround cuts me. Not who is my neighbor, but who sees me as theirs. That changes everything. And, and God help me if I ever get to the point where I truly need help. When I truly need my neighbor. At, at this point, we can agree we're not talking about the person next door, right? This isn't about geography, but it's about cardiology. It's not about location, but our hearts and who we're willing to serve or willing to ask for help. And that's why I really beat that point about bifurcation into the ground, because if you don't see your heart and soul and mind as component parts of a whole person, why would you ever, ever, ever need to ask anyone for anything besides physical help? But 
if you are body and soul, then our identity and security in Christ ought to drive us to say, I need help, and ought to drive us to our neighbors who are saying, I need help. I need a change. I don't know how. Can we talk? I know who I am in Christ. You help me take out the trash. (laughs) And who is our helper? Who is our aid? Who is our rock and foundation? Who the Bible calls our ever-present help in time of need. There's there's a lot of times where uh, Cynthia will ask me, "What's, what's going on? How are you doing? How are you feeling? You seem kind of out of it. I honestly am not able to answer. I don't always... No, so I don't always know my own heart and soul and mind, but I do know that my Redeemer lives and he is the strength of my heart. As the psalmist says, he's my portion forever. So don't lose heart. 2 Corinthians says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God to love your neighbor, we do not lose heart. Hebrews 12 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The text says this command to love your neighbor, it's like the first. I don't know exactly what the text is getting at there, but I think it might have something to do with the fact that um, heart, soul, and, and mind have to do with our interior life. But what's exterior? What's outside of us? Well, it's God and our neighbor. So just like our heart and soul and, and mind, they're connected to what's going on inside. Well, there's something happening outside of us too that's equally important. And God's command is to, to look at that. Check it out. Look what's happening That's all of life. So what should we conclude from that? How should we wrap this all up? (laughs) Um, Jesus, he gives this stipulation well on his way to the cross. This is Matthew 22. There's only 28 chapters in Matthew, so we're getting close to the end. But is that all Jesus is? He's the end? A new lawyer, happily ever after, a moral teacher, a better rabbi, finally, someone who will make a better sacrifice? No, not at all. Jesus, he knows that Israel failed to love God with their whole hearts, their whole souls, and their whole minds. He knows that they failed to love their neighbors as themselves. And he knows that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders were concerned about none of that except for bolstering their own reputation. Remember we said in the beginning that the gospel, the gospel is that everything that God requires, he has provided in Jesus. Even heart, soul, and mind? What about your neighbor as yourself? What about, what about Jesus' heart? John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. His heart is for you. What about his soul? Matthew 28, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sweating blood as he heads towards the cross, he tells Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. His soul is for you. And Isaiah the prophet prophesies about this Messiah who would come, but the Lord God helps me Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. His mind is determined about you. And when he hung on the cross, and that thief next to him, his neighbor, 
confessed that Jesus had done nothing wrong, he said to him, his neighbor, truly you will be with me today in paradise. His heart is for you. His soul is for you. His mind is for you. All of his strength is for you. And he is for his neighbors, even as he goes to his death. So for that thief and all of us, we can confess along with the Apostle Paul that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has crucified the law and its requirements. He nailed it to the cross. He was born of a woman, born under the law, born in the fullness of time to redeem those under the law. If you walk away with nothing, walk away with this, that in his heart, in his soul, in his mind, he has done all that God required, all for you. And now as the king of the new covenant, he calls you to bear that first and greatest spiritual fruit, love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as Pastor McLaren said, who can bear the impossibility of these two commandments apart from your empowering grace? Lord, we want so badly to be drawn to you. We want so badly to be able to say yes to these commandments, but our hearts are are ever conflicted. Um, Lord, thank you that you are the strength of our heart. Thank you that you sent Jesus, who was full of the Spirit, who came full of grace and truth in order to redeem a wayward bunch like us. And thank you that as, as he takes up residence in our lives, he changes us and molds us and shapes us to truly love you, Father, and to love your people And to recognize that our neighbors are not only those who we see, but those who see us. So Father, as as we go out and we ask that question, who is our neighbor? Um, Lord, help us to to be reminded that it it might be a little more broad than we thought. Help us to think of those who who are asking the same question about us. That we might serve them and expect nothing in return. Lord, be with your people today. Bless us as we continue to sing and worship you. And as we go from here, um, would we ever worship you with our lives? Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.